You're listening to the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Harden, and I'm so glad you showed up for our relationship chat today, as well as for you and your people. We're all about living intentionally here so you can experience joy and balance in your relationships once again or for the very first time. Be sure you hang with us on our social media platforms. And if you like research like I do, make sure you check out our website at enneagramandmarriage.com for our weekly newsletter, freebies, and so much more, as well as at Instagram and Facebook. We have so many goodies to share with you. Let's dive right in together. guys, I'm so glad you joined us as we are getting ready to talk about such an important topic in marriage with Dr. Frederick Kuna. We are so honored to have him. He has been an European Union diplomat for a number of years and really helping the world through the war crisis and so much more and speaks multiple language and has to uh, communicate all over the world with leaders. And we are so grateful to get to have him talk to us about his Enneagram research, where he has also researched uh, so many of the every single Enneagram type subtypes to walk and talk with them through relationship diplomacy to be able to say, how can we get along? We're all different types. What can we do? So, so grateful that Dr. Frederick has turned his work in this direction and you're going to get to hear about his marriage with his lovely wife and his daughters. And uh, I'm just so excited for you to get to walk this part of the journey with him because I know that it's going to help your relationship just as it helped mine when I got to be shored up by him. And I know that getting to talk through, okay, what do I do if I feel dissatisfied in this or that area? And we are going to be talking in a respectful manner, even about the sexual area. So just get ready for a full robust episode where you could hopefully truly come away with life changing in a positive direction uh, relationship tips. So we've tried to be practical as well as theoretical here. So I'm very excited for this episode. Also, I want you to know that because our Enneagram and Marriage book is now in pre-order, we have pre-order bonuses we're also rolling out. So make sure you save copies of receipts or send them our way at enneagramandmarriage at gmail.com so that we can make sure to take care of those for you and get your pre-order bonuses as soon as those roll out. So very excited about that. And of course, if you are you know, leaving this episode mid-episode for any reason, make sure you also just head over to the show notes because all of Dr. Frederick's information is there too. So, okay, let's talk to him right now. Roderick, we are so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. It's my honor. Yes, I got to talk to you guys about Dr. Kuna before he came on today. We are just so grateful. This is a really big day for you. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, actually, today is my first day of what I call free life because I've decided to take a break from my uh, career. I have two years of sabbatical ahead of me. And so today is the first day. And in this sabbatical, I want to do more on the Enneagram. I want to research more. I want to write more, reflect more, and also process more for myself. Mm. Wow. This is going to be so exciting. And you've been, in many ways, a world diplomat in Ukraine and everywhere else. Tell us a little bit about your work uh, up to this point and your family. Okay, yeah, sure. So the, the Enneagram is more of a hobby for me. It's definitely not my profession, but I hope to to be, well, to, to make it more of a profession. So for the past 20 years, I've been a diplomat for the European Union, and I've worked in places like Tajikistan, Georgia, Belarus, and most recently in Ukraine. So until a couple of days ago, I, I was still based in, in Kiev, in Ukraine. 
Um, and so there I've been dealing with development assistance. So I've been leading a team that's in charge of all the projects that are funded by the European Union in those countries. Um, so as I said, the Enneagram is a bit of a hobby and that's because my wife is a psychotherapist and she's been dragging me into lots of these psychological theories. And one day she said, oh, hey, ever heard of the Enneagram? And I felt like, oh my God, what is she coming in with now? Yeah. But then each time she comes up with something, I better listen to her because most often she's very, very right. Oh. Yeah, then I then I took a course on the Enneagram and it became more and more interesting to me. And I started really figuring out some of my own patterns, seeing how I'm sabotaging myself. And that's when I started doing some research as well. And yeah, so for the past five years, I've been doing research on, on sex and the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. I can talk a bit later about research maybe. But then, yeah, in terms of family, well, I have, um, I've been married very, very happily for 10 years now, for almost 10 years um, to, to Yaroslava. She's a self-press sexual two. I'm a self-press social uh, six myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think it's a very good combination. I call it a perfect neurotic match because um, we, we, we somehow we somehow preempt the, the anxieties of each other. Mm. So I would say that, for example, my, my wife has a self too. She wants to hear that she's loved without having to do anything about it. Yeah. And she really likes putting the house in order. She really likes creating this homey atmosphere. And for me, as a self-press six who has a rather busy job, what I really want in the evening is coming home, seeing smiley faces, mm -hmm. the house is clean, there's food, everything is pleasant, mm -hmm. comfortable, and so on. And then I tell her very often just that I love her without her doing anything. It's not that it's like a deserved I love you. It's it's, yeah. it's actually more this six-ish saying I love you to preempt abandonment yeah. as a way of figuring out like look i'm going to say i love you and if you also say i love you then i know the relationship is fine yeah. when i say that then she already hears it without having had to do anything for it so that's how i come to this um, this notion of a perfect neurotic match <laughs> that is oh my goodness you've nailed it and you also have a lot of grace for each other i hear within that because you realize this is very instinctual we're doing our best yeah indeed indeed Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad you guys have a beautiful family. I've been so grateful for your course. I think that uh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about how you come to the Enneagram as not a scholar first, but uh, somebody who just really learned through your psychotherapist wife and then couldn't let it go. I think a lot of our listeners can appreciate that, even feel that with you. And yet I want to remind everybody that uh, what really struck you uh, me about you was I do think you have such a scholarly way of looking at all of this. And that's what's been really helpful for me. So I'm so excited that you're going to be taking more time with it because what you've already done has really blown us all away. So thank you in advance. And I'm also putting a plug in there for you guys to check out his research. Um, so thank you, though, that you are delving in. Maybe a few words on, on the research, because while you say that I'm, I'm not a scholar on this topic, well, I have, a, I have an academic background. I did a PhD in political science, but I actually got bored of the political science, but I'm a researcher at heart. And I think that it's also conditioned a little bit by this self-press six in me, 
Because the self perceives wants to make sense of everything, wants to systematize knowledge, wants to understand how different bits and pieces come together. So I think there's already some kind of scholarly aspect by nature in the self perceives but then also because it's, it's what I really enjoy doing. So I, I think that I have just changed the focus of my research from political science mm-hmm. to this area. Mm. And I can now hear how you bring that into the course I've taken from you because you really give us a sense of world dynamics and world history. And I think that marital histories and dynamics are very important for us understanding today. So I'm really grateful that you do that. I also would love to have you before I ask you some very pointed questions that I think will be helpful for our audience. Um, Even more helpful, I think, might be just them knowing the bigger body of the sexual research you've already done in case they want to take your course down the road as things become more available to the public. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you've done? Yeah, so I started about five, six years ago. Um, I just overheard a discussion between two people about sex, and I just thought this does not make sense, what they are saying. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe Enneagram can help. And that's how I started reading what is available in terms of literature, talking to people. But then when the pandemic started, that was when the research really, really took off because I found a few other people um, online who were also dealing with the topic of sex and Enneagram. Mm. None of them are researchers, but some of them are, are sex therapists or relationship therapists. Mm-hmm. And so together with uh, Valerie Wanamaker, um, a couples and relationship therapist in, in Asheville, North Carolina, we decided to, to team up because, mm-hmm. well, COVID, can't go outside, so what do you do? You just have Zoom meetings. So we thought that let's let's have Zoom meetings that are useful to us. So we we put together people from different types in in groups. So we had people from type one, people from type two, and so on. And then we had nine sessions of an hour and a half with each of these groups. So Mm -hmm. we had 13 and a half hours of discussions on sex with each of the types. Then we also had discussion groups with instincts. We had discussion types uh, discussion groups with the spouses of each type. So, for example, with the spouses of twos, the spouses of threes. And so, after about a year and a half of all these um, interviews and focus groups, um, I was able to start analyzing it, putting everything in some kind of conceptual frame and also link it with literature. So, I went through about 200 books, hundreds of academic articles. Mm-hmm. And I've really tried to um, to bring structure to a lot of the knowledge that is already there, but also fill the gap because in sex therapy, nowadays, people very much look at it through the medical angle and not as much through the psychological angle. So if we're looking at disorders, sexual disorders, very, very few have a physical or medical um, root or origin. Most mm. of it is actually psychological. And very often, if there is something medical, if you dig deeper, you're still going to find some, something psychological. Mm. And of course, what I also did was I, I took the first year of a PhD program in clinical sexology. And that really also gave me a very strong foundation to understand a little more about disorders um, that people may be facing. Mm. So I really try to put together something that's approaching different angles. So it's not only psychology, it's not only the medical stuff, but it's also the sociological stuff, the historical mm. stuff. Right, um, And this is why I think it is so all-encompassing. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. And I can remember listening to it. It was a few years back during COVID, but on a road trip from like Michigan all the way down to Florida. (laughs) I was like, this is so interesting. Um, But now I understand why, because like you said, multidisciplinary and very relevant, uh, practical and uh, also self-sacrificing. So thank you for sacrificing all that time for us. We all appreciate that loyalty of us six to bring us something good. And I'm so grateful our audience is really leaning in to more than just medical. We appreciate the medical like yourself, but we love that you have done this nuanced work with Valerie. And we are so thankful to dive in with it uh, with you. Now, do you have any research that you'd like our audience to be looking at before I ask these other questions so that they can already be uh, answering more or you feel like you're kind of moved past the place of seeking more people to research? Well, research is never over. I mean, anybody with uh, an academic background is going to say that even after 30, 40 years of studying a certain subject, there's still something you didn't go through. Mm -hmm. But I think that I'm close to the end of researching this. I want to move to other things, but we are going to have one more round of focus groups next year where we want to go very, very deep. We are still looking for people from the different subtypes Okay. want to put people in groups of subtypes. So we'll have 27 groups that are going to have probably four sessions, also of an hour and a half, to dig very deep, to go through what we already have about the types, the instincts, but also to dig even deeper, to, to really find how this merger of instinct and, and type play out. So mm-hmm. people who are interested should definitely reach out to, to us um, and we'll be happy to include them in the research. Because uh, well, what I want to say here, maybe the final thing on this research is that people who participate in these focus groups are not only giving something to us as researchers and, and the wider Enneagram community, but they get a lot themselves because it doesn't happen very often that you can speak to people of your own subtype and really talk about sex because in personal development, sex is very often forgotten. It's still very much a taboo thing. Many teachers don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the knowledge mm-hmm. um, to support their clients, their students, participants in, in their workshops. And I believe that with this kind of um, focus groups, we actually offer that opportunity to the people. And, and it's a very caring environment. There is no judgment whatsoever. Because again, as it is all about research, our aim is to be as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. So there is no space for any form of judgment. Yeah. yeah, which is beautiful and very helpful for people thinking about it. Like, am I going to be judged? Am I going to be you know, put on the spot? And you're actually saying, because we understand your type so fluently and your subtype, we will be extra gentle. Thank you for sharing about your research. That's awesome. Thanks. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about those of our audience members who are in middle marriage or even early marriage, even pre-marriage, who are looking to uh, whatever stages of marriage, who are experiencing uh, this frustration of sexual incompatibility. Uh, Some of them are really feeling like they may have chosen the wrong person. I know you talk about this in terms of differences. Can you tell us a little more about why people might feel that way and what we can do when we've hit that stage of marriage or life together? I think there's indeed many couples who at some stage in their marriage somehow feel a certain dissatisfaction with, with their sex life. 
And then the very automatic response is that, oh, there must be something wrong with my partner or maybe something's not okay with me or just not compatible. But what is incompatibility? Um, I I think most often um, incompatibility is the excuse for not understanding each other. And I mean, with not understanding each other, it's not in a judgmental way. It's more just as a matter of fact that we do not know our partner because many couples do not have an open discussion about sex, about their sexual preferences, their desires and so on. Because I believe that almost everybody in our society is somehow sexually traumatized. It doesn't mean that you were the victim of sexual abuse, but our values, um, the the values that we have grown up with are quite repressive. Yeah. As a result, we we don't have a vocabulary. We don't know how to speak about sex in a mature way. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine that it would be forbidden to speak about tomatoes, for example. But you would still be eating tomatoes, but never talk about tomatoes, never talk about how they look, how they grow, how how you wash them, how you cut them. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to suddenly feel something's wrong with these tomatoes. But actually everything is fine, but it's just that you don't, you'd never have a, a good communication about it. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that this is the, the first thing that very often people don't understand each other. But if we're going a little bit deeper and we look at the Enneagram, and we can see the dynamics of what can lead to these incompatibilities. And I think there's two very important dynamics. The first one relates to the instincts, the second one to the types. The mm-hmm. instincts give some kind of temperamental flair to our sex life. Yeah. So whereas the, the, the sexual dominant person is going to show up most often with a lot of intensity, is not going to think of how much energy am I expending, Mm-hmm. If you have a partner who is sexual blind and to make it even worse, let's say he's also self-pressed dominant, yeah. then that person is going to think very much subconsciously is going to think of how much effort do I have to put in here? Mm-hmm. How much energy do I need to spend for this sexual encounter? How much effort does it take for me to get my orgasm, for example? So for self-pressed dominant people, it may feel as if they're doing a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Sexual dominant is going to think like, what What would you mean? It's about, this is just a life force that's flowing through us. I'm not doing anything. It's happening through me. Mm. And also the social dominant person may look at it in a different way. So this is the first area where we can see this kind of perceived incompatibilities. Yeah. Second thing is that the reasons why people have sex can also be different. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you would just ask people, like, why do you have sex? Mm-hmm. You're going to hear lots of different responses. Mm-hmm. And we're not really thinking of, like, well, we're actually giving meaning to sex. We're attributing meaning to the sexual act. Yeah. But sex in itself has no meaning. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some biological functions to it. People have sex for procreation yeah. to generate offspring. People have sex for recreation mm-hmm. because it's a good way of resetting the central nervous system. People have sex for relational reasons, for the bonding, the release of oxytocin and caring for each other. But if people say, I have sex because I want to feel loved or I want to feel strong, I want to feel powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not what sex was made for. That's not why God created sex. Mm -hmm. These are reasons that relate to our ego. So very often people are seeking ego gratification through sex. Mm -hmm. So if you give meaning to sex, 
and your partner gives a completely different meaning to sex, then you're going to start thinking like, look, there's something wrong with my partner. Mm-hmm. The reality is that you are both looking for something that you cannot find there. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for ego gratification in sex, you're never going to find it. You may find it short term, but you're not going to have this deep felt sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Mm. We get this very short term um, drive and, and, and lots of hormones that come up. Yes, that is so helpful for people to process with us that it might not be that you're, you know, here we talk a lot about the fundamental attribution error, that you are the one who is a little bit better or healthier because you view it as a way to be playful or you view it as a way to be loved or safe. But to be able to say, sometimes you look at this through your ego lens too, just as your spouse or partner does. I hear you saying that, uh, you know, that's not as expansive of a view. That's not the the intent for sex initially. Um, and it's a little bit of an entitlement position that we bring without even realizing it. And on top of that layering, you're saying we also maybe do some of this because we haven't had a thorough education and we've had such a repressed culture around it. Wow. And and you talk about this with upper and lower levels of intelligence. Uh, I love that about the Enneagram that we can be a type four or two, but we may have, uh, you know, looking, we may look like nothing of the person next to us who's the same type because we're functioning in different spaces with our ego. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that for those who don't know anything about that? Even I would love a refresher. Yeah. Okay. So the, the levels of development mm-hmm. and through a model of the strength of the distortion of our ego fixation. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we take type eight, mm-hmm. A type eight, which is, let's say, emotionally immature or in a lower level of development, to to use the Enneagram terminology, that person is going to be very aggressive. That person is not going to care about anybody as just going to take it. No matter if the other person is going to suffer. It's a very egocentric, narcissistic approach. It's rooted in a sense of psychological deficit. Mm. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, in the higher stages of of development, uh, the higher levels of development, when people are emotionally mature, they're acting from a state of abundance. And yes, the ego fixation is still there. Type 8 is still going to be assertive. But it's going to start thinking of, like, how do my actions have an impact on other people? Yes, I know what I want. I have the lust of the type 8. But it should not come at the expense of other people. Mm -hmm. So... There is, it, it's a spectrum. It's not that you're on a, on a low level or a high level. There's, it, there's different gradations there. But what we have also seen is that this has a huge impact in sex as well. So people for whom the ego fixation is very, very strong, people who really seek this ego gratification and can't find it, mm-hmm. the first thing they're going to do is blame the partner. Everything with the partner is wrong. And they're not looking at the fact that maybe the problems are also with them as well. Most often, we are at the same level of development as our partner. Mm-hmm. And what we see very often in the Enneagram community is that people think that, oh, I've done all my work, but my partner didn't. Well, no, most often you are developing together. If you're truly in a loving relationship, you will go up together or you will go down together. Mm-hmm. Now, we also see that sexual dysfunctions happen very often in the lower ranges. So if we're looking at erectile dysfunctions, 
problems achieving orgasm, problems getting aroused, and so on. Very, very often, this also has to do with this inner state of development, with our own psycho-emotional maturity. The higher we go, the more we start looking at ourselves. The more we let go, the less fixated we are. So the higher people go in these levels of development, the more satisfied they are with sex. Mm. It doesn't mean that people in the low stages of um, these low levels of development can't have good sex. Yes, they can have spicy sex. It can be very hot. They can really enjoy it. But they do not have a sense of deep felt satisfaction. Mm. So I, I think this is important to differentiate between this short-term feeling of, of uh, a true drive of uh, some kind of ecstatic feeling mm -hmm. from one side but on the other side a more longer term feeling of satisfaction so the higher people go in these levels of development the more satisfied they are with sex and it's not because they have more spicy sex or anything like that mm -hmm. on the contrary it is just that they are more in touch with themselves they understand themselves they understand what they are looking for they're no longer seeking ego gratification through sex. They're having sex for its true meaning for procreation, relation, and recreation. Mm -hmm. And they also see the partner. They, they see what the partner is looking for. Also, communication becomes much more easy. In the lower levels of development, if you're just blaming your partner, that's not a good start for an open communication. Mm -hmm. If you tell your partner you have problems with sex, then how do you expect your partner to have a mature discussion with you? But in the higher levels of development, you're less judgmental. You look at them objectively. You are willing to see how you are contributing to the dissatisfaction, and you see how your partner is contributing to it. And together, you're somehow trying to figure things out. Mm. It's a very different, healthier way of looking th at things. And I hear how you have to be a bit more stable to even have these kinds of conversations. And if you're dysregulated in a number of ways, it's going to be very difficult. So sometimes, like you said, we might say, oh, my partner's the one who's just bad and I'm good. And instead, it's probably best for everybody here watching or listening to say, how can I have more of a healthy focus on our growth together? How can I understand that I too have things to grow in? And how can I lean into these three areas of sex? You said procreation, uh, connection, or you said recreation. Creation. I said it wrong with an R word. What was the second one? Reconnection? Procreation, relation, and recreation. Okay. And recreation. And I like how you said recreation because I get it that it's recreation in the way that I'm thinking of just the word as a whole. But I like how the way you said it reminds me of the RE uh, prefix to remind us like we're recreating together also each time and rebonding. So um, I guess I just really love that you've reminded us of that today because I guess that a lot of us um, even those people who are saying I'm struggling and I need a different partner um, may have work to do. And there's hope in that implicitly, right? Yeah, and definitely, definitely. Because thinking that I need a different partner mm -hmm. is, is also a defense mechanism, but it's a very easy one. It's, um, it's escaping the problem rather than solving it. Because mm -hmm. that's something we see very often that people go from one partner to the other, hoping that things will be better. But if you are not sorting out your own issues, you can change partner a hundred times, but you're still going to face the same problems. And each new partner, the problem is going to be even more acute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 
really well said and really something I know a lot of our listeners feel because they've shared that with me and just, oh, they're like, I am with that next partner or that next partner. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow after the honeymoon stage of a relationship is over and we're starting to enter the shadows to be able to see that, but people are willing to do the work. So that's why they're listening. That's why they've taken a deep breath, even if they're uh, you know, feeling a bit jarred because they want to do this work. So uh, what would you say would be a good place for people to start if they say, you know, I want to become more expansive in my life with my partner in this area, especially in my marriage. Like, what would you say might be a good way to just kind of baby step toward that? Look, I think the first step is to be thankful to your partner. Mm. Because the automatic reaction is just to say, oh, something's wrong with my partner and I must be fine. And we all have that. Yeah. Um, myself, I also have yeah. moments that I'm like, judgmental of my wife yeah. I have to constantly remind me of no mm-hmm. actually I have to be thankful because it is thanks to my wife that I'm facing these challenges mm-hmm. and thanks to my wife I get the opportunity to do something about it mm-hmm. I would get rid of my wife then I mm-hmm. don't have the opportunity to grow because I think that one of the main reasons why we have come to planet earth mm-hmm. is actually to grow to yeah. achieve freedom and our partner is actually our biggest gift. The partner is both triggering us, but also helping us in processing it together. So I think that that's the first thing. Just try to, no matter how big the trigger is, always come back to the state of gratefulness to your partner. And the second thing, if we're thinking very specifically about dealing with issues around sexuality or sexual dissatisfaction, it boils down to one thing. If you think that you have to change something in your sex life, there's a high likelihood that this is not true. The only thing you may have to change in many cases is just communicating about it in a different way. Mm. Because I have seen also for myself that in my own sex life, nothing has really changed. But the way I look at it, my own perception has changed. Mm. And as a result, also my sense of satisfaction. But how do you do that? And I think here, very important, in order to communicate, it's not about, I mean, talking about sex or talking about anything, communication is all the same, right? It's about being not judgmental, listening, and so on and so on. But I think there is one important thing that is missing when we're talking about sex, and that is knowledge. Mm. As few of us have enjoyed sexual education at school, that is really, let's say, open-minded without perversities right Um, because at school very often what we were told was very restrictive and then when you look at the internet you're you're only see you'll only see perversions almost and and lots of uh, distortions again so i think it's very important to to start learning something and i think this is one of the main objectives that i had with my course i wanted to create some kind of vocabulary i wanted to give some kind of model a framework in which people can understand things mm-hmm. so when you know that as a type three this is how your type influences your sexual thinking your sexual behavior you're no longer going to see it as something personal you're going to see it as the way that you have been programmed and if you see that your spouse is a type seven mm-hmm. and these are things that come back very often with many sevens you're no longer to blame your seven. You're actually going to say, hey, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And if you have this kind of objective language about the theory says 
that and that and that shows up for this type, that, 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 that shows up for this instinct. Mm -hmm. You're no longer talking about yourself. Yeah. You're no longer triggering yourself. You're no longer triggering your partner. You're not accusing your partner. You're just saying that, hey, now that's interesting. Like, how does this resonate with you? So, for example, if you are self-press dominant, how does this resource efficiency, how does that resonate with you? How does that show up? Does sex feel like work to you? Mm -hmm. So it's no longer personal. You're no longer going to offend the other person. You're no longer going to, to trigger the trauma to wake up again. Mm. That is so well said. And I hope everyone is listening to that soundbite. Go back to it if you didn't, because that is truly epic and exactly what we all need to hear. We are in that space sometimes of judging or uh, not knowing these intricacies and having that wisdom and knowledge. And I I hear a lot implied there from the you know moral implication from the moral implications, as well as the stoic, I hear Marcus Aurelius a little bit like, Hey, whatever I got, I can deal with it. Like, I'm glad I got this because I'm strong enough to deal with it. And I love that. And I think that's wise. And I think we all try to do that here. Um, but I also hear you saying culturally, like, Hey, we have had blind spots and traumas and uh, case in point yesterday, my da daughter started her first um, college courses at a public university here in Florida and uh, at the honors college. And how awkward was it for the whole student body, whatever backgrounds denomination space they had or lack thereof, they were just thrust a huge pile of condoms the first day. And she's like, everyone started joking immediately. Like it wasn't a healthy sex education. It was just like people pretending like, what if I got up right now and grabbed them all in my bag? And, you know, it was just an awkward way for the college to try to do something good. Um, but this is probably almost like, you know, a good example of some of the education we've all got. We recently had a guest on who shared that we've only gotten about 30 or less hours uh, throughout our high school education. So what I hear you saying, Frederick, is like, give yourself some compassion. You haven't had the best training. And that's been beautiful to see that your work has started to develop this. And I wouldn't even just say started. You guys have done so much research that I feel like we're all going to be really helped by it. So I really hope it makes a huge impact out there. I think very important here is that very often people think like there's something wrong. Mm. I think that's the wrong place to start. You have to think there's something I don't understand about the dynamics in our sex life. And mm -hmm. I would like to figure it out. But it's not about right or wrong. Yeah. It's just a lack of knowledge. Yeah, it really is. And you have shared how people, uh, first and foremost, you said, you know, gratitude. And then you said, understand that you may not have anything to change, but your perception, these inner scripts, these narratives we talk a lot about, um, this is scrubbing that and, and training and new habits. This is all part of it. Um, but I also have heard you say you welcome when people have different instincts so that we can teach each other slowly, but surely about ourselves. Is that right? That you believe that, uh, couples actually really, uh, can help to long-term give each other a more expansive way of seeing the world. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's from some side, you could say that it's great if a couple has the same instinctual stacking, because mm -hmm. it makes life maybe a little bit more easy, because you have the same priorities. Mm -hmm. If you have the same priorities, then you can't learn that much from each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that couples who have like an inverse stacking, um, maybe they have a, a bigger opportunity to, to learn from each other. It's much more challenging, I believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
much more dissatisfaction and many more struggles, but at least it opens more doors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do believe that um, there are many theories about how to deal with the instincts. Mm-hmm. People, some teachers say that, well, the best way of dealing with the instincts is you starve the dominant so you can feed the blind instinct. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really believe that much in that one. I, I think it is more about seeing the patterns because, look, if you're self-pressed blind, you're never going to be self-pressed dominant. You're never going to feel excited about it. Mm-hmm. It's more about understanding how your self-pressed blindness may be sabotaging things for you. Mm-hmm. And if you have a partner who may be self-pressed dominant, maybe you can just equalize it with each other. So you have just a little bit more to talk about. Yeah. So it, it, again, it's about the growing together. And I think that's the, the, the key in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense that you're like, there's a lot of complex, like, Formula A says to use your instinctual pattern this way, if you're self-pressed, this, this, or that. And I know I even hear say, if we need a pattern, start with your self-pressed to replenish, then work with your family so you can make sure they're healthy and well, and then you'll be all better in the world together. And I truly believe that. But I also believe that what you're saying is true, that sometimes we just have to look at this one's going to be hard for me. Maybe this other one gets neglected sometimes. So I have to schedule it in because it seems to be fine, but it might not be like your secondary instinct. And then your dominant instincts always going to be strength for you. So sharing that with your spouse is a good strategy. I, I think related to that is that I do believe that we all come to planet earth with a certain mission in life. And I think that our type and our instinct are given to us as some kind of, like some kind of bonus, some kind of, how shall I say, some kind of positive propensity we come to earth with that is helping us. Now, for example, if I look at myself, I am sexual blind. Mm -hmm. Now, if I feel that my mission in life is very much about researching, collecting information, systematizing it and sharing it with other people. If I would be, if I would have a stronger sexual instinct, maybe that would divert my attention from my mission in life. But that doesn't mean that being sexual blind is good and that the sexual instinct is not important, not at all. It is just that for my own mission in life, the sexual instinct doesn't bring a lot of added value but I should still try to see how I can use it. So I should get activated. I mean, being self-pressed dominant, sometimes it's very difficult to tell, hey, now I'm going to get my act together. Yeah. That's what the sexual instinct can give, this kind of um, activation or feeling passionate about what I'm doing. It's very important. I must have it, but I should not overdo it. If mm-hmm. I want to come up with very objective, very sober frameworks that allow people to reflect on, for example, their sex lives, if I'm going to use the, the let's say, the, the more fantasy and the more idealized way of thinking of the sexual instinct, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a favor to the work that I'm trying to do. Mm. This is why I, I believe with the instincts, this attempt to equalize them and have them all on the same level, I personally do not agree with that. Yeah. I believe that we should not completely neglect the blind one and we should not sabotage us by ourselves by overdoing the dominant one. That is true. 
but I do not believe we have to equalize and as such. Yeah, we like to say balance here, but what we really mean is rhythms because I hear you saying, and it seems to really fit that everyone is going to have this unique spin and none of them are perfect, like you said. Um, I know this, I know one of the reasons that I thrive in certain areas is because there's also gaps in certain other areas. And so I think that's true of all of us. And we have to look at each other in that graceful way. Like, okay, you struggle with this, but you know what, because of this, you're doing beautiful work. Um, And so I think that's lovely for you to say that versus, oh my gosh, if you're not balanced, if it's not 33.333, you know, infinity to uh, each of these, then bad, you know? And so I'm happy that you got to point that out to people. Uh, that isn't the goal. It's being yourself, but letting somebody else influence you, right? Yes. I mean, imagine that you have 33.33 on all of the instincts and everybody's like that. I mean, the world would lose a lot of its color. Mm. Humanity would become yeah. less interesting, I believe. Yeah. It, yeah. it is just this, this, this diversity that I think humanity is actually thriving. It is because we have a stronger focus on something. It is because we're more driven into a certain area that we're all contributing in our own specific way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I hope everyone can be encouraged who's right now locked up about their spouse or themselves to just be able to take a breath with us and say, you're doing beautiful things. You have a beautiful mission you were created for. And keep doing that, you know, and keep working to find that if you don't know what that is. Um, and if there's, you know, that's probably a great last question for you is if somebody's in that space where they're like, I am locked up, I'm hearing you say gratitudes, I'm hearing you say change my perception, and I'm helping them with some inner scripts as they do my pods, and I know they're going to connect with you too, but what can they do if they just don't know what that mission is yet? What do you advise those people you coach? Well, finding your mission in life is a difficult one. Um, I think finding your mission in life, you have to look at four parameters. Mm. And, and it is something that I also teach with the levels of development, the model that I'm using, but it's also related to uh, the, the Japanese concept of Ikigai about finding your mission in life, which is very much about four parameters. You have to look at what, what can make a living for you? I mean, at the end of the day, you have to survive, you have to, to, to feed the family. So what is an issue that you can make money with? The second is, what do you enjoy doing? It's not. I'm not talking about pleasure, but I'm really talking about enjoyment, something that you say, hey, I like doing this. And, oh, I didn't know. I mean, the, the day passed by, and I went so quickly, but I really enjoyed what I was doing today. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is, you have to do something that you're good at. Mm-hmm. If you're not good at painting, but you enjoy doing it, it'll be hard. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing is, and this is often forgotten, is you have to find something where you contribute to a higher good, mm-hmm. something where you contribute to society. And if you just look and you just have to see like what, what resonates with these four criteria, mm-hmm. which areas of life, what are the things that I'm doing? And that really resonates with that. Um, because very often we, we think that we have to be the best at something. We have to shine. We have to make a huge impact. I think this is pure narcissism. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the best in the world to do something. Yeah. 
I, I see this very often with psychotherapists and they think that I have to be the best psychotherapist. No, you don't have to be. You just have to do a good job. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing, you have to make a living and you're contributing to society. Not everybody can be the best. So I, I think that we need to let go of ourselves. We, we need to be a little bit, um, we need to take ourselves a little bit less serious. Mm-hmm. The last thing related to that is that some people think that, oh, I don't know what I'm, what I should be doing. I don't know what my mission is. And they're just sitting and waiting and they hope that it's suddenly going to come to them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's not just going to miraculously come to you. If you don't know what you want to do, just do something. Just do something. Mm-hmm. And step by step, you're going to see that, hey, this is something I like. Maybe I should change that. And life is going to create a path in which you're going to find it. And for some people, it comes when they're 14 years old. For some, it comes when they're 14. There's others who just find their true mission in life when they're 70 years old. And there is nothing bad about that. Yeah. Because it is possible that at age 70, this is the moment where you start integrating everything you did before. And this is the moment when you're really going to create lots of value for other people as well. Mm-hmm. So I think um, we should also not be in a hurry to find our mission. We will find it, mm. but we have to give the universe the mm. time and the space to, to unfold. Mm. And in our consumption society, where we want things quickly, yeah. um, it's very difficult to, to find our mission that way. Mm. Yes, but we can share that here, and I'm glad you are. And I'm glad we can share that with the next generation, too, who maybe with uh, your diplomacy and others and all these gifts, uh, there will be some more space for them to do that increasingly. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. This has been so enlightening, such a wonderful episode. I always say like, I'm putting this one in the vault. I don't want to lose it. Um, Can you please tell us uh, where people can find you and your work as they want to, I know, continue uh, gleaning from you? Yes, so people who would like to to hear more about this topic of sex and the Enneagram and also in the future who would like to see more of my work on on the other areas that I'm uh, researching, they can just go to the website enneapath.com or go to the YouTube channel um, Enneapath. And the the whole course, the, the whole 21 hours, I believe, of me speaking about sex and the Enneagram, everything can be found on the website and on, on YouTube. Because I see my mission in life as um, researching, putting information together and sharing it to people. Mm. I'm not a businessman. I'm not selling yeah. knowledge. I want to share it with people. Mm. And people, and, and because I, I think one of the challenges with the, the Enneagram is that the Enneagram is not really a democratic thing. Um, attending courses is something for I would say almost a certain financial elite and not everybody has access to it. So I, I just want to make a, a lot of that information available free of charge. So people who, who are interested should just check it out. If people have questions, something that they just can't grasp, they can always reach out to me. I will be very happy to, to, to speak, answer questions and, and so on, because this is what um, I feel is my way of, of contributing to, to humanity. Mm. Wow. Yes. Okay. Well, we will. Thank you for uh, awakening to your gift so that others could really learn with us today. And I'm grateful for myself, my clients, my family, uh, and I will put everything in the show notes. We're so grateful, Frederick. Thank you for having me today. Mm-hmm.
Guys, thank you so much for joining us for this deep dive. I am so grateful. I love hearing from multiple perspectives. As you could hear today, Dr. Kuna is so passionate about helping us to make sure that we don't blame our spouse for the things that we need to work on within our range of accessibility. And so let's do that work with deep breaths. Let's find our life purpose. If you need help with finding that, as you know, Dr. Kuna has a website. He's researching with you. There's a lot of social camaraderie within in that research. Also, we have coaches and counselors that would love to help you through the process too. If you're just in that space where you're wondering what's next, I need some support. So uh, we have that. We have the Enneagram and Marriage book coming out for you. So you can already pre-order that and get your bonuses. We just want you to make sure that you get that self-preserving and the sexual and the social so you can continue to light up the world in your way. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening with us. It was so wonderful to have you. I love knowing we're doing this journey together, not perfectly, but with love, grace, and hopefully some fun too. If you love today's episode, make sure you leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcast or Spotify so others can find it too. Visit our show notes so you can get all the links from today's show, as well as EnneagramAndMarriage.com, the Instagram, the Facebook, and all over the place. Make sure you spread the word. Love living intentionally with you. Bye-bye.